Good morning, everybody. I am E. Reese, the executive pastor here at The Surge, and uh, we are continuing, actually wrapping up our At The Movies series this year. I mean, we're doing the movie Dune, which actually took the first half of the book, which was a good decision because Dune, I, I would think it's fair to say, it's a book of rare complexity, and it would be really hard to do it justice in the time frame of a movie. Um, I thought they did really well with the first film. I'm cautiously optimistic that the second film will not drive it off the rails of, or, you know, wreck it by trying to fix it. <laughs> I hope they'll just do what Herbert wrote in the book. Um, and I've got to tell you, I'm a, I'm, a sci- I'm a fan of the science fiction, and particularly of the science fiction of Dune. I encountered Herbert, gosh, as a kid. I'm ready as a teenager. I've read uh, the Dune series a couple of times since then. I've just enjoyed it. Um, he is a terrific writer. He's just a beautiful writer. Now, this isn't Christian fiction, um, and it's not necessarily a Christian story straight up, but as these things go, it's pretty clean, it's super interesting, and Herbert is a beautiful writer. Now, the world of Dune is complex in its nature and in its scope, and one of the key themes that, that both Herbert and the movie deal with is the idea of fate versus free will. And our main character, Paul Atreides, is getting glimpses of his future even early on, and these, vision, these visions are both hopeful and they're also terrifying. And the tension of the book and the film, even more so in the next film, if they follow the book, will be the consequences of Paul's choices and his freedom or lack of freedom <laughs> from his perspective. And this will be an interesting idea in terms of our freedom in the context of faith. So let's, uh, let's watch a key scene that really sets up a lot of the movie that highlights this tension. So this is the hand in the box scene. Here we go. So from Paul's perspective here, he has a choice to make. He can keep his hand in the box and be maimed, right? That's because he thinks his hand is actually being burned. Or he can pull his hand from the box and be killed. So he's forced to choose between a bad option and one that is even worse, that is horrifying, which is annihilation. And this is a choice that Dune brings us again and again and again. And the choice for the greater good means enduring something terrible with consequences. Now, in my interview with my friend Tim, um, he mentioned that if Paul isn't able to do this, that the, the Bene Gesserit character who's, who's putting him through this test is telling him that he isn't really human, which Tim calls a troubling idea, and that's, that's right. We're still human if we, if we get this wrong, if, we're, if we make the wrong decision. We succumb to fear with this kind of thing. But there is something here that's worth considering, and that's, that's this. That as people, we have this amazing ability. It's amazing. We can look past the moment to the bigger picture. We can actually decide in advance what to do in a complicated situation. We can perceive the world and the complexity of layers and make the surprising choice in a way that isn't available, as far as I can tell, to the rest of nature, to a tree or a dog or a chicken or a manatee. They'll never, ever voluntarily keep their paw or flipper in the box. Um, In this way, the capacity to do this kind of thing, to sacrifice something important of ourselves for a greater good, is something that's uniquely human, and that's the point of this test. So Paul is being asked, in some sense, to use his freedom to give up part of himself, and that idea keeps coming, keeps coming. And it, it, not only in, in this movie, but it'll be in the second movie, and not only in Herbert's first book, but in all six of his books about Dune, this idea keeps recurring, and it's a key piece to understanding what's going on. So let's, let's watch the same idea happen again in a different way where it escalates a bit, and this is a Paul in his first Fremen duel with a guy named Jameis. Paul winning the duel, and he actually kills the Fremen who challenged him. And his choice, again, here is very similar to the scene with his hand in the box. He is seeing, he kind of gets his double vision during the duel itself, that if he survives this, there's something even worse coming, which is 
you know, the jihad that he's seeing, this ocean of blood that his, that his friendmen are going to go. If he, if he goes on this path, some very bad things are going to happen. But if he doesn't go on the path, humanity itself does not survive. And so the choice he's faced with is to kill his opponent or die himself. But even if he would rather die than kill, his death is not just his own. It's his mother Jessica, it's Chani, his future wife. And this circle continues to spread until the injustice and evil of humanity results in the death of humanity himself. So it's this terrible choice. Do I kill this guy in the duel or do I let, all, do I let everyone die? And his choice is essentially the same as it was with his hand in the box. It's just bigger. Does he choose something terrible? You know, to be made, to lose, to use your hand? That's very bad. Does he kill to eventually release the, shim, the Fremen Jihad in his name? Or does he refuse and perish knowing that everyone else will pay the price for his choice as well? Or does he pull his hand from the box? Knowing what he knows, does he pay a terrible price to prevent something worse? And it's this idea of foreknowledge and this, this, these prescient visions of the future that he's having, um, creating this tension and this, this terrible perspective that Paul steps into. Now, in classical literature, one of the best examples of this idea, of this choice, goes in a different direction. Um, in the play Macbeth, the character Macbeth meets three witches at the beginning of the play that give him insight into the future, they tell him a couple of things that are going to happen, and then they tell him, and you're going to be king. <laughs> you're going to get to be king. Um, and when the first predictions come true, he starts looking for the throne, and in a sequence of events, he and his wife stage a coup. They actually murder the existing king, and that propels Macbeth to the throne. And by the way, if you haven't seen uh, Denzel's version of this, it's one of the best versions of Macbeth I've ever seen. It's absolutely spectacular. I would highly recommend it. So if you want to see a good Macbeth, Denzel does it, does it very well. So... The question that people ask about Macbeth is this. If he didn't know the future, if Macbeth did, if he, if he wasn't given this insight into his future, would he have taken the path that he did? Um, disloyalty, murder, treason, all sparked by this prophecy of foreknowledge. And is Paul undergoing a similar thing? Okay, so the good news is <laughs> that it related to the gospel, and as we slowly turn from Dune to the idea of a community of faith, um, God does have a better answer for us. And so uh, as exhibit A, I would give you King David. He was exactly in the same situation. A divine agent named Samuel comes to him with foreknowledge that he's going to eventually become king. But instead of, and he anoints him as God's choice for leadership. But instead of following the path of Beth of murder and mayhem and like kind of propelling himself to the throne, taking matters into his own hands, God stays true. David stays true to God's heart and to honor. He does not try to take the throne himself but he acts very ethically, very morally at every step of the way, even when he has opportunity um, to take Saul down, who Saul is hunting him and, and acting very badly. He doesn't respond in kind. He takes the high road and stays on the high road throughout this entire sequence, even though he has lots of chances to do so. So the biblical line on foreknowledge and prophecy is that our circumstance, that our fate does not take away our freedom to be good, to make virtuous choices. And ultimately, people can't, other people can't stop the will of God in our lives. And this is good news. So if we, were asked, if we were to ask the question of Dune, how do we deal with the idea of fate and freedom, and we bring that to ourselves, what does Scripture have to say about that? Well, it turns out lots of interesting things to say about that. Um, and so I may not go the direction you think, you think I'm going, but, but we'll, we'll get there. So in Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to skip down in the chapter a little bit, we have this idea about how we respond to the idea of our freedom kind of in the, in the hands of God. So it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Later in the, in the chapter, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in, in, this, in this series of, of statements and in this series of ideas, we, we come to something that, that is actually fairly common in Scripture, and it's a, it's a literary technique called a paradox. It's a literary paradox, and it literally means this. It's an apparent contradiction that when you understand it, it actually leads to a deeper or more complete truth. So Jesus says famously, if you want to be first, be last. <laughs> you know, look to serve if you want to lead. Paul writes in Corinthians that when we're weak, that's when the strength of God can shine through us. So when we're weak, we're actually strong. Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it, will find it. And in Dune, Paul acquires this amazing knowledge of the future, but he's trapped by this terrible choice. But the gospel leads us to a different idea, and the idea is this. Instead of the only way out being revolution, the only way out being some kind of, of physical jihad, Jesus brought us a divine connection with God that is stronger and more real and more powerful than any government, than any system, than any economic power. And our path to true freedom is not through becoming super beings, right? It's through surrender. It's through letting go of control in, in, an, in a really important sense. Now, this isn't an abdication of conscience or clarity. Um, this isn't a blind acceptance of, of a weird authoritarian rule. But what it is, it's a deep trust in God who loves us and who wants what is best for us and who wants us to be free. So we trust him with these important things. We give it to him and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice and God puts us on an incredible path. So the surrender takes two directions, um, and again, this is really simple, but, but, but good. First, we live out surrender in our bodies, right? This is silly. <laughs> it sounds silly, but it matters. God is not calling us to withdraw from civilization completely, and we meditate our way by ourselves in a room with no one around to spiritual goodness. Rather, the spiritual worship God calls us to works itself out day to day, person to person, through our hands, through our feet, through our words, and through our work, he fills us. He sanctifies us in the real world to be holy, to live in ways that are good and pure in our bodies, right? And we're actually not, we're not spirit beings who are, you know, speeding or not speeding through the, the school zone. We're actually doing things in the real world. And, and God wants us to take this idea seriously that holiness works itself out in the things that we actually do. And so surrender happens in our body. Surrender also happens in our mind, in the renewing of our minds. And this spiritual worship of surrender means that we trust that the thinking that God has given us, the ideas that he, he gives us through his word and through uh, people who are smarter than we are, as best as we can ap apprehend what those ideas are, 
we consider those things more trustworthy than our own thinking and our own incomplete conclusions. And this is hard to do um, because sometimes Scripture will lead us to an idea that is unpopular in culture or it's unpopular, you know, it's something that I learned in childhood and I believe that this is the most important thing and then Scripture says something else is the most important thing and I've got to unlearn some things and go, well, you know what, I think this is credible, I think this is good and I'm going to trust that above my own opinion. <laughs> right? And, and, and this, this, is, this is something that, that can be tough. But it's part of what being a Christian means, that we surrender our ideas to the ideas of God, and we will be better for it. Sometimes we need to unlearn a few things that are not good for us so that the gospel can lead us to ideas that are higher than our own. Scripture says that God's ways are not our ways. He looks at things differently than we do. We tend to, we tend to be small and shallow in our thinking and in our ideas even in our dreams, and God wants to blow that stuff up and lead us to something better. And, and one of the things is this, and this is, this is a great example of this. There is literally no worldview in the world. There is no ethical system. There is no set of laws. There is no national standard that says, you know what? Love your enemies. <laughs> you know, be really good to people that are mean to you. It's like, no. They say kill your enemies. If this guy's your enemy, then you be really smart and be really clever, and here's a list of rules to defeat your enemy. That's what everybody else says. It's what every other religion says. It's what every other philosophy of everything says. It says, you know, you, you, you engage your enemies in a specific sort of way. But Jesus says, no, love your enemies. Bless those that persecute you. Feed the guy who's against you if he's hungry. Give him something to drink if he's thirsty. And, and this is a really interesting idea. Instead of seeking to banish and marginalize and punish enemies, we're to love them. We're to bless them as best we can. And literally no one else is saying this. Nobody is saying that this is a good idea. But if you think about it a minute, it is a good idea. It's a very good idea. The only way your enemy will not be your enemy anymore is if you find some way to love them, <laughs> if you find some way to have common ground, if you find some way to come into agreement with them, if you find some way to bless them in some way. That's the only way your enemy will ever become your friend. Um, and, and the only reason um, this is a good idea is this. It, on paper, this is a bad idea, but it's a good idea because God is smarter than we are, and he can work around circumstances in ways that we can't. Our Messiah is not limited by the system, and he's not limited by these awful choices. He's bigger than time and space. He's bigger than any system. He's bigger than any powerful person. He's bigger than any government or power or person. Our surrender is not a surrender to being abused by a world that hates us, and then that's the end of the story. No, it's a surrender to God, understanding that the cost that we may pay now will have an excellent return on investment because God is in control of everything, right? Matthew says that anything we give up in this kind of surrender will be paid back 100 to 1. He's not bound by resources. He's not bound by systems. The give and take of his love is not a zero-sum game where if somebody else wins, I lose automatically. Nope. God can work it out so that we all win <laughs> if we will all step onto his path, which is something that is good. Um, the acceptance of his will calls us all to love, to do better, to find the hope of heaven, and that starts even here on earth. But it starts with the renewing of our minds, to thinking thoughts and taking ideas seriously that we would never, ever get to on our own, like love your enemy. Um, can have astonishing results. Okay, so... The, another idea that, that Dune kind of comes to is, is I think Dune would land on the idea that um, it's a famous line through history that the idea that the ends justify the means. And what this, what the, this idea means is 
is that, well, sometimes you've got you know, to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. You know, you've got to do something that's maybe a little sketchy or a little wrong if you think it has a good outcome. Scripture doesn't ever do this. You just ne- we, just ne- we don't see this in the idea in the Bible. The ends do not justify the means. Um, Jesus doesn't sin to somehow rescue us, and he never calls someone like David to do something wrong, even if it's to get rid of Saul, who was a bad, a bad leader. And the back half of Romans 12 is super clear. We don't make the choices that Paul did in Dune. Rather, we act nobly. We act good in every way that we can. In every situation, we take the high road, and we leave the results to God, who can very effectively work around people who are not, who are not playing by the same rules we are. And God is not trapped by a system of unintended consequences. His will reigns over all. He knew the end before the beginning, and instead of setting up history to pay a terrible price for his will, he took that price upon himself. (laughs) He paid it himself while being completely innocent, blameless, loving, good. God took all of that on himself. Instead of breaking eggs to make omelets, (laughs) God took brokenness, and he took it upon himself. He took it upon himself, and he calls us to walk this path says in Romans 12, in the middle of the passage we read, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. God is calling us to take the high road, and so do that, right? We are not called to do things that we think we are wrong to prevent something that we think of as worse. Instead, we stay in the lane of loving virtue, kindness, goodness, and we leave the complexity of outcomes to God, and we can trust him with that. So the last thing is this. We can trust God with this kind of surrender. This sounds kind of risky, right? You know, I'm going to lay down before my enemies and be nice to them while they, while they try to abuse me. But we can trust God with this, this path. Why? Because we saw Jesus do it himself. He literally led by example. When we see Jesus in Gethsemane, he's not sitting glibly on the throne of heaven, calling us to sacrifice ourselves for his divine pleasure because he thinks that's funny. Rather, he became a man. It's a different thing. He became a man. He presented his body as a living sacrifice. It was wholly acceptable to God. And he performed an amazing act of spiritual worship, the deepest act of spiritual worship the world has ever seen. He found the will of God in Gethsemane, and it wasn't a choice between something bad and something terrible. It, it, it had a real cost to it. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it was good and acceptable, acceptable, good and acceptable and perfect in its outcome. His love was poured out for a world that hated him, and it was the biggest turning away from vengeance that the world has ever known and ever will know. He took all the vengeance onto himself, so we don't have to take vengeance anymore. It was the single most definitive action of loving enemies that would ever be made real because everybody was an enemy of God, everybody. And in that moment, Jesus said, my love trumps you being my enemy. My love is bigger than than the enemies. My love can make the enemies into my friends and into my children. And his sacrifice wasn't in vain. It was the love that opened the door for redemption for everyone, for billions and billions of people that God will save. In a very real sense, Jesus put his hand in the box, right? He refused to take it out. And it wasn't just for a weird test or or for a story, but he did it for us. He kept his hand in the box and suffered for us. He gave himself up, not for his survival, but for the salvation of you and me and our families, and every generation. The surrender he calls us to is one that he deeply experienced himself, and he draws us into that work to some extent in the earth. Not just experiencing the love of God, but becoming the love of God and amplifying the love of God 
in ourselves, in our thinking, in our words, in our bodies, in our actions. And so as we take a moment today to take communion, um, let's go ahead and, and do that. Um, as we take communion, let's reflect on that idea of sacrifice, and let's reflect, let's reflect on the idea that um, we can be filled with God's love and what that means for us and the choices that lay ahead. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this day you've given us. I thank you for, for movies that can give us a springboard, for interesting ideas to talk about, and I thank you for your word that can clarify and sharpen these ideas in, in an even better direction. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us deeply today about what freedom really means, about stepping into your will, about what that can mean for us and the people around us. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.